That's the 11.25 Tarrago to Sydney Express. Not many trains terminate in this town of only a few dozen houses, a primary school and a pub about an hour from Canberra in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands. Apart from the train, this is an otherwise quiet town. It's close enough to Canberra that tree changers have moved out here with their horses, but it's still largely an agricultural area, and the rolling paddocks remain productive cropping and sheep grazing country. There are no passengers on this train, just freight. It's cargo? Garbage. Thousands and thousands of tonnes of every type of rubbish under the sun, bin liners, banana peels, chip packets, are loaded into containers in Sydney and transported through the countryside to here, the little town of Tarrago. A staggering 40% of Sydney's waste will wind up out here, and the site is capable of taking over a million tonnes of rubbish per year. A lot of what we produce and chuck out these days can't be reused or recycled, and it doesn't break down. It's plastic, and it's a huge and growing problem. I'm Tom Melville, and for this week's episode of Voice of Real Australia, we're going to examine our love affair with plastic and try to figure out what we do with it instead of just throwing it out. One possible solution is to burn it and produce electricity. One of these waste-to-energy incinerators has been proposed at the landfill site outside Tarrago. But the prospect has some locals concerned for their health and their livelihoods. Everyone around here drinks rainwater that runs off their roofs. Yeah, the, the human impact is, is huge. The potential particles that would come out of from the incinerator fall on our roofs. Having an incinerator isn't going to stop the rubbish that's at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, it will make it worse. That rubbish was produced by companies who will continue to produce plastics and waste. But before we return to Tarrago, let's visit a place we're all familiar with. The supermarket, where we buy most of the plastic packaging we can't recycle. So what we've got here is three different sorts of tomatoes bought at the same supermarket with different packaging and different instructions on the packaging to the consumer. So we've got That's Pip Keenan talking to Voice of Real Australia producer Laura Corrigan. Pip's the head of Clean Up Australia and has been worried about plastic pollution for decades. She took over the role from her father. My dad, Ian Kiernan, founded it in 1989. So he was a solo yachtsman and had been sailing around the world in the BOC race and had been horrified by the amount of pollution, particularly plastic pollution that he'd seen in what should have been some of the most pristine parts of the world. So he came back and started Clean Up Sydney Harbour and 40,000 Sydney siders turned up for that event. So the following year it became a national event and Clean Up Australia was born. Pip and Lara went to the supermarket and bought some groceries. Pip wanted to introduce us to the galaxy of different packaging and all the complicated rules about what can and can't be recycled. And here's a second example. Again, it's the supermarket brand. It's made out of plastic this time, which says at the bottom that it contains recycled bottles. So it, it is recycled content, which we all need to look out for, where we can buy recycled plastic. That means we're creating demand for recycled plastic. And again, the film can be returned to the store, to the recycle bin. This packaging doesn't need to go to waste, it can have another life. It's amazing how many different types of packaging there are for just one product, like tomatoes. 
A third example of tomatoes, they're branded. Again, they're part of the Australian recycling label, so it's got instructions to the consumer that the cardboard tray can go into the recycling bin at the curbside. But unfortunately, the film has to go into the regular waste bin. It's not really clear why, because the film looks pretty similar to what was on the other products, but it, it says it needs to go in the bin. The best way to buy your tomatoes would be to take your own bag and buy them loose and have no packaging that requires no recycling or no um, going in, into landfill. After buying some fresh food, Pip and Laura moved to the personal care aisle where they found an example of two similar products with very different packaging. So we've got here the Tresemme shampoo by Unilever. It's a bottle made with Australian recycled plastic and it's recyclable. It's a great example of what we need more of. At the moment in Australia, only about 10% of plastic is being recycled. The rest is just wasted and works its way through the system and into landfills. That doesn't include the stuff that escapes into the environment as litter. Then another example of a similar product, so again it's hair conditioner, but it's in a tube that's got a metallic gold finish and it looks lovely, but you turn it over and the instruction from the label on the back says it has to go straight in the bin. So totally wasting those materials. Um, They are not captured, they do not have another life, they just go straight into landfill. We've all bought all of that at some point, I'm sure, and perhaps wondered why everything is wrapped in plastic. Each of us gets through about 130 kilos of plastic every year, and that number is growing. And we need to really reward the brands that are doing it well, so buy the products where there's recycled content in the packaging, reduce our consumption of packaging wherever we can, so buy the brands that are using less, refuse the over-packaged items, buy our items loose wherever we can, buy refillable options, that's becoming more and more prevalent and that's a great way to reduce waste. This is one of the most sophisticated eco-precincts there is in Australia. The Woodlawn Eco Precinct in Tarago is where a lot of waste from Sydney ends up. There you go, copy him. It's a massive area centred on the site of a disused zinc and yeah, copper Justin, mine. I'm just doing a lap again today, if that's all right. Oh, hey, Justin. Yeah, mate, all good. How big is this place? So 6,000 acres, the, the entire site, um, and that's made up of a few different areas. There's still an active mine where they're looking at taking out uh, copper. Uh, There's a farm that we run with about 20,000 sheep. And then there's the landfill itself, Uh, the bioreactor landfill. We'll explain what that is. Uh, We'll start by going down to the mechanical biological treatment. So, French multinational Veolia operates the facility. The company's Australia and New Zealand chief is Richard Kirkman, who took us on a tour. We all piled into a ute and drove around the massive site. The muddy roads get a lot of use. We drive past mounds of dirt, reclaimed organic waste Veolia will package up and sell for fertiliser, and big ponds of contaminated water that the company is not allowed to let run off the site. The landfill itself is a big hole, 800 metres across and 120 metres deep. We can see bulldozers at the bottom covering up layer after layer of garbage. Okay, so we're standing above the uh, bioreactor landfill. You can see that we're uh, laying out some waste in that area down there, those uh, tipping machines. And you can see the network of pipes that are in place to 
collect the gases and the leachate. So every time you lay left to rot, the, the kind of rubbish that goes into this hole would emit huge amounts of methane, a greenhouse gas and a big driver of climate change. And how long do you expect? How long does each level take, and how many do you have left? And yeah. so the current landfill has a 30-year timeline on it. Okay. The current fill this landfill is the end of the line. It's almost an admission of failure. Ideally, nothing would go to landfill. Everything would be reclaimed and repurposed, and there'd be zero waste. Instead, facilities like this around the country and the world are slowly filling up with the junk we throw out. Veolia is proposing to build what's known as a waste-to-energy incinerator here. The idea is simple. You burn garbage that isn't otherwise recycled. The heat produced boils water and spins a turbine, creating electricity. In this case, enough to power around 50,000 homes. Veolia calls it the Advanced Recovery Centre, and the plan is to have it divert 380,000 tonnes of waste from landfill every single year. It's a new technology in Australia, but they're in use all over the world. It's not a very efficient way to produce power because rubbish doesn't burn very well, but it's a solution to a rubbish problem that's only going to keep growing. Richard Kirkman argues that this is a much better use than letting our refuse rot in disused mines. So I think in Australia we probably landfill a bit more than other countries. You know, we landfill more than Europe does. Um, We landfill all the residual waste, what we would call the waste after you've done the easy recycling. And most states, uh, New South Wales is a really good example, have quite a progressive policy in place now to prevent waste, which is the first thing you need to do. Uh, Then once you've got some waste, recycle as much as possible, collect the food and organic waste and process that separately, and then for the residual bit, can we move away from landfill to energy recovery from that part? And you need to do all those things. It's not one answer, and within each of those answers, there's lots of different types of technology we need. Veolia operates 65 of these facilities around the world. There are a couple going in in WA, but this would be the first in New South Wales. There are two proposals for similar facilities by different companies in Sydney, but they're facing stiff opposition from locals. The issue is that burning waste creates emissions, and the people of Tarrago are petrified about what that means for their town. Uh, So uh, Tarrago sits at the bottom of those hills. It's the end of the Great Dividing Range. So, you know, those hills go all the way up to Canberra, really. And so Tarrago sits at the bottom of those hills. You can see all the existing wind turbines. The existing uh, bioreactor is in there, and that's where they intend to put their incinerator. We're out the back of Paige Davis's house, about 15 k's from Tarago. We can just make out the town in the distance over lush, undulating paddocks. Sheep and the occasional horse dot the landscape. Paige has lived in Tarago for a decade since moving here from Canberra. We built a small house in one of the subdivisions up in the top of Canberra, and I could hear in my house... I could hear the neighbours coughing in their house. And I was pregnant at the time and I was like, I cannot do this. And I wanted a garden and I wanted chickens and I wanted to be able to have my kids outside. We just said, we can't do this. And so we made a decision. We were willing, we were both public servants at the time, my husband and I, and uh, we said we'd be willing to drive for an hour, put in a pin, drew a circle, out we came. And we came out here and we loved it. And it was beautiful. It is beautiful, man. See it on a day like today. It's, you know, birds and the insects and space. My kids climb trees and they can do whatever they want. We came out here for the lifestyle. And, you know, it disappoints us when 
governments and people in the city think no one lives here and those that do don't count. She doesn't mind living so close to the Woodlawn facility most of the time. She loves it out here. But she does say that when the conditions are right, the smell, even at a distance of more than 10 k's, is awful. During our tour at the precinct, we caught a whiff as well. At the beginning of last year, the odour kind of changed from a sour milk and rotting garbage kind of smell. It had a real metallic tang to it. And I run up and down my lane and uh, there are days when I just have to stop because you can't uh, open your mouth because it gets in there. It's like at the, it's a back of the throat. Um, so anyway, I don't know whether there's anything toxic in it, but so last year it was particularly bad and I understand that last year alone the EPA got 300 complaints about the odour and that's with a community that is really burnt out from having to make complaints because nothing happens. Paige says the smell is so bad sometimes it has woken her up at night. She says occasionally when she turns on the tap, the water which comes out, tank water collected from her roof, stinks of rubbish. Like when I turn on my bathroom tap, I can smell it. And the gentleman from the EPA, he said it's likely to have already tainted your water tanks. Right, that's just the smell from the bioreactor, which we're all told is not toxic. So already our water tanks are likely tainted by the bioreactor stench. And then we're supposed to believe that nothing bad's going to happen with an incinerator. I put this to Veolia CEO Richard Kirkman. You mentioned drinking water. It's all tank water around here, by and large. Mm-hmm. But one woman was saying she could, she can sometimes smell the bioreactor when she turns on her tap. One concern of hers is mm. that whatever comes out of the waste to energy facility will do the same thing, even if she can't smell it. There's nothing. That, that's there's pretty. That's pretty scary, though. I mean, you've got to yeah. admit. I mean, it can't. Mm. It doesn't sound like it'd be good for you. I mean, even if, even if the, uh, it just intuitively, it doesn't sound like drinking that kind of odor or not odor would be, would be a good idea. Hmm. Well, what's coming out of here is CO2, part of which is carbon neutral because it's from organic source, and water H2O. That's the majority of what comes out of this facility. Everything else we're capturing, and we have to evidence that everything coming out is not going to cause any issue. There's no possibility that that's going to cause an issue. Normally we'd be almost finished sowing and stuff by now and it, this weather's just a, a nightmare. We've got a, like a hay business as well and yeah, it's too fucking wet. Like we're, we're just about to... Just down the road from Tarago is Austin McLennan's sprawling 5,000-acre family farm. He's cutting lucerne when we visit, and trucks are about to arrive to ship hundreds of his lambs off to market in Sweden. It's a busy operation, and with his first child on the way, it doesn't look like it'll get any less busy anytime soon. Austin is worried about the potential effect emissions from the proposed incinerator will have on his livestock, which are governed by a strict quality assurance program. The lambs that we that we rear and sell a part of a independent QO program and the program um, stipulates that we have to rear the lambs um, chemical free, they can't graze paddocks that have been sprayed and they're within a withholding period, they can't be mules, we have to use muzzles on our dogs, you can't use uh, cattle prodders, 
Um, so all these things are, are important and we get a premium off the back of that. These lambs are going over to Sweden and if the potential particles were to come from the proposed incinerator at Tarrago, then it could put the future of the lamb, our lamb selling operation at jeopardy. When did you first find out that this proposal to put a waste to energy incinerator just down the road was, I guess, a live idea? Uh, late last year, um, it would have been. Um, so only, only a few months ago? Yeah, a few months ago. Sort of felt as if we were the last, the last to know. But yeah, we were pretty, pretty upset when we did find out. We really went into it thinking about it open-mindedly because, you know, we're well aware that we are in a small town and things like jobs and income into the town are important. However, that after, after looking at everything, I, I can't, at this stage, think of any reason why we would want this incinerator to be coming into the town. There's far too many negatives for me and there's far too many unknowns. Austin says his main concern is for his health and the health of his family and neighbours. Everyone around here drinks rainwater that runs off their roofs. Yeah, the, the human impact is, is huge. The potential particles that would come out of, from the incinerator, fall on our roofs, that would then run into our rainwater tanks and we'd be all drinking it. You know, I'm about to start a, you know, we're about to start a young family. My wife, she's pregnant. She's due to have a baby in a couple of months. It, it doesn't feel that, that good to me that there's going to be a, an incinerator put up in Tarrago and that could potentially have, a, have an impact. There's been the plume plot of where the particles could run to and we're definitely within that area, so that's a bit frightening. Violia's Richard Kirkman disputes that this will be an issue. So it's completely safe. Veolia operates 65 of these units around the world. There are around 450 operating in Europe. There are about 1,500 of them around the world entirely. It's probably the, one of the most well-studied and well-regulated engineering processes there are because people were concerned about what were called incinerators of 60 years ago that did used to have black smoke coming out of the chimneys. And that was... Uh, you, you wouldn't get an energy component out of that. You were just basically that was burning, just burning. burning that was just burning. These are highly engineered technical processes where we spend a third of the investment just cleaning the gases. Okay, and you don't find any other processes doing that. You know, coal-fired power stations, cement kilns. They're processing things. We're actually trying to treat this material so there's no impact. Richard is adamant that the waste to energy process is a safe one and won't impact Woodlawn's neighbours despite various studies suggesting that there isn't enough evidence to state unequivocally that these facilities are risk-free. A 2020 study in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health found that there is insufficient evidence to conclude that any incinerator is safe. It added that contamination of food and ingestion of pollutants is a significant risk pathway for both nearby and distant residents. Another study from Europe found high levels of contamination near incinerators and found that the majority of eggs collected nearby exceeded safe levels for certain chemicals. But Richard isn't worried. You can always find somewhere written that there's a process that isn't safe. I think you can always find that. I would liken it to the fact that some people will tell you that climate change isn't happening and that humans didn't cause that. 
But then there's a thousand of the world's best scientists at the IPPC saying that climate change is a real thing. And I think if you look at the overwhelming evidence from science, this is safe in the terms that we understand the word safe, because you, know, you could argue nothing is safe. But in the terms that we understand it, this is a very safe process. This will not harm people locally. This will not harm the environment or health. And I think that's what the authorities stand by in most places in the world. You can find the converse to that. But I think that's the same for everything in life. You know, science is not perfect, but it indicates what's best to do. So we're trying to do things that are better than they are today. I think developing energy from waste instead of putting everything in landfill is better. Austin is suspicious as to why Veolia wants to put the incinerator here in Tarago. Sydney creates a whole heap of garbage and just send it out to a small town that doesn't have a huge amount of people living there and it's just a quick fix for Sydney. In reality, the lives of the people in Tarago and surrounds matter just as much as the people in Sydney. If there was a couple of million people living in Tarago, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. It's all about votes. So we're going to, a similar pitch was knocked back in Sydney just a year, year yeah. or two ago. How does it feel that they're like, well, where do we go now? Let's put it out Well, it makes, it makes you feel like you're worthless. Apparently, if it's, I believe it was in Western Sydney where it was going to go ahead. But yeah, there's obviously too many votes there. They need the votes. They obviously are taking us for granted and... You know, there's obviously not enough votes in Tarago and they, they just don't care. It, it is very frustrating and we're getting over it. Austin doesn't believe we should be using these facilities at all. I don't accept that it's got to go somewhere. I'm, I'm not an expert on managing waste in Australia. Like, I, my job, I'm a farmer, I'm producing food for the country so but I've tried to think of ways that I'm not sure it, it's going to take a lot more thought than you know just a bloody sheep cocky in Goulburn but yeah I'm not I'm not sure. Richard is aware that there is a lot of concern in the community about the waste to energy incinerator but believes that this is the best way forward his job now he says is to explain what is going on to help alleviate some of the fear and wherever we do these things, people are concerned because they don't understand what we're doing and we haven't explained it yet. At the moment, we're doing an environmental impact assessment, which is peer-reviewed by the experts and checked by the authorities. When we have that information, we'll be going out, I'll be going out, and speaking to individuals, to councils, to groups, to explain what we're doing and what the impact is, which is that it won't impact their lives, their health and their farms. That's a journey we need to go on. And to answer your question, I don't think we'll convince every single person, but I'm going to do my absolute best to convince as many people as I can. I suspect Paige might be one of those people Richard will find it tough to convince. She's very keen to see the environmental impact statement when it eventually comes out. She's conscious, however, that there is a waste crisis in Australia, but doesn't believe Veolia's plan is part of the solution. What are we going to do with the plastic issue? You know, they found plastic at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Do you remember asking me that question? No one had asked me that before. Not what should we do with the rubbish, but like that specific question. And for me, actually, an incinerator is only going to make that problem worse because it lets the polluters, the, the companies that produce the plastics and the rubbish, continue to do so with impunity because 
if they can burn it, then they can keep doing business as usual. Yes, sure, we can out of sight, out of mind it, put it in an incinerator in Tarrago and the city folk don't have to deal with it. But that rubbish, the plastic that's produced by those producers, the big, big polluters, Coca-Cola, Nestle, Johnson & Johnson, they're all major plastic producers. They're going to keep producing that plastic. Well, they can put it in an incinerator, then an incinerator is only going to make the plastic problems worse. But I wonder, I mean, they've been used in the UK, the few in Denmark. Does this, does that make you more confident that... Uh... No, because the UK is actively trying to have a moratorium on building any new ones. The Scandinavian countries are actively trying to get rid of them now. Japan is actively trying to stop building new ones now. What? So no, it doesn't because there's st more and more studies come out. And this is the problem because short-term studies don't cut it because this stuff accumulates. So a study from the past year saying, oh, this technology got put in last year and it's great. Well, that's not a study. That's a snapshot. There's a difference. So European countries are actively trying to stop building new ones. It sort of goes to the point then that Veolia needs to find somewhere else to build some incinerators. Where's an easy target? It's ping Australia. She doesn't like these machines because they're a backward step and provide businesses with a perverse incentive to create more rubbish rather than reduce our waste output or find something productive to do with it. So what do we do? Pip Kiernan, who took us shopping earlier, argues that instead of finding innovative ways to dispose of our waste, such as better landfills or waste-to-energy incinerators, we need to design better products with better packaging. She's a firm believer that we need to have a circular economy. We've made some great progress uh, in the last 12 months with certain single-use plastics and problematic plastics being phased out across states and territories across Australia. So that's good progress, but we really do need to have better product design, better product packaging design with circularity in mind so that it's, they're, they're designed for those materials to be captured at the end of their life and then turned into new products. The utopian end goal of a circular economy is to have no waste. Products are repurposed and reused and nothing gets chucked out. And there are some companies getting on board. Beverage company Asahi is building a plastic bottle recycling plant in Albury. But as it stands, it's still cheaper for companies to use virgin plastics than recycled plastics, unlike metal, glass and paper, where the recycled material is less expensive. And Richard points out that plastic plays an important role in food production and distribution, so we're going to keep using it. You know, manufacturers are paying for that material to put it on their food, so they're not doing it for the wrong reasons. They're preserving the food. The shelf life of materials is much longer. You can transport them distances. People can eat fresh food. So before plastic packaging, you would see a lot of people eating more tinned food, and now you can eat a lot more fresh food across the world. So there's an overall health benefit. We now have to solve the problem that that plastic's introduced. I think realistically there are cases where we could eradicate plastic. We could, you know, in France they've recently legislated that all fresh vegetables should not be wrapped in plastic. That will lead to some wastage of food, and that food has an energy requirement to make it, and that will have an environmental impact. You have to balance all these difficult things. Looking at our current relationship with rubbish, an entirely circular economy seems like a remote possibility. We're hooked on packaging. It's easy, convenient, and crucially, it's cheap. 
Would we all be willing to pay a little more if we knew we were all one part of a vast circular economy? Pip says, sure, it might cost more, but we have to work out what we value too. It's interesting because when we talk about the cost, you know, there's the environmental cost as well. So it might be cheaper at the checkout, but there's this legacy for the environment. You can shop around and find uh, less packaged products that are still great value. But also we are on a journey with the biggest supermarket chains where we are starting to do things better and we need to keep the pressure on to make sure that continues to happen. I mean, there's a great example. Coles have started a concept store in Mooney Ponds in Melbourne where you can refill your laundry detergent or your shampoo, for example. We need to get excited about that sort of innovation and, again, like with the recycled bottle made from recycled content, if we show enthusiasm as consumers and reward those brands doing great things, then we'll see more change and more innovation. Australia needs to rethink how it deals with its waste. For many years, we sent the majority of our unwanted rubbish overseas to China, but that country banned the import of the world's rubbish a few years ago. Almost overnight, the piles of trash we were exporting out of sight and out of mind to other countries suddenly became our problem again. Pip talks about consumer-driven change. We buy less packaging. But Richard says if companies were in charge of the disposal of their packaging, then they would have a greater incentive to reduce or reuse it. You know, if you buy a pint of strawberries in your example... You pay for the growing of those strawberries, you pay for the the people that pick them, you pay for the energy in the warehouse where they packed them, you pay for the transport to the shop, you pay for them being in the shop. You don't pay for when the wrapper's thrown away. That's paid for by the local authority where you live through a general taxation. So that cost of packaging, whether it's recyclable or disposable or whether it's thin or thick, is not inside the economic system of buying it. And if it was, it would optimise the way manufacturers made things because businesses are really good at optimising their costs. If they had to pay for if it's recycled or disposed, they would make them more recyclable. So I think taking that cost away from local authorities and putting it through the manufacturing chain doesn't change the overall cost. So we're not saying let's make things more expensive. We're saying shift the cost burden to the people that can make the good decision. This is already being rolled out in the EU and the UK. Yeah, so across Europe, they call that um, extended producer responsibility. Um, In the UK, they're currently implementing an economic system that works like that, internalising that cost to manufacturers, taking it away from local authorities. And here we have what we call product stewardship, which is attempting to do that, but more on a voluntary basis. So voluntary basis is a good start. You know, people are motivated by this. Most companies want to be better. But it means you're at a disadvantage because if you're better, other people might not be and they'll be cheaper. So I think it probably helps everybody to have some minimum standard. Pip and Richard agree that recycling and reusing plastic waste is the best thing to do and that non-recyclable plastic waste should be avoided. Whether we as consumers force companies to innovate or whether the cost and burden of waste is shifted to the producers, the end goal is the same. If plastic were a truly circular material, if recycled plastic were cheaper than virgin plastic, and if we reduce single-use plastic packaging wherever possible, then there would be no need for the incinerator that has so many people around here worried. Back in Tarrago, 
Paige reckons we should be aiming for that reality. I believe our population, our community, just our community people in Sydney, I believe people want a better way to deal with this stuff. If they didn't, people wouldn't be putting stuff in recycling bins. People wouldn't be using the kitchen waste recycling bins that I understand some councils are putting in place. Now, people want, people want to have a better way of doing business, of dealing with their rubbish, of reduce, reuse, recycle. People want to do that. Building an incinerator helps the people who own the incinerator and it helps the companies who refuse to change the way they produce their products. And putting it out here only allows people to pretend that it's business as usual and, and that's, that's the end of it, it's all good. Austin is frustrated that he has to worry about this kind of thing at all, on top of the long list of worries he already has. You know, people might think at the moment all the rain, farmers are happy, but we basically went out of a couple of years of drought We've now gone into two really wet years, almost double our average rainfall. So there are so many dramas that we're dealing with at the moment and the added pressure of this is a real issue. People are very anxious and it's, it's not on. Paige says she's conscious that her campaign to prevent this incinerator from being built might take years, but she's committed anyway. I love my community and I know this is wrong. And I believe that it shouldn't be my community's responsibility to deal with the toxic outcomes that will come from this. There are better ways. Let's open our minds to that. Let's not be led by the nose by companies that want to make financial benefit by making and building an incinerator here. Did the government, both federal and state, not learn anything from the PFAS situation that they've been dealing with for years? That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia. You can follow me on Twitter at tommelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in Canberra on Ngunnawal country. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to John Hanscom. Our editor is Emily Sweet. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs> <laughs>